Ah, the literary biography! What a sumptuous melange of enticing morsels to unite the layman and the cultural dilettante alike! Take a spree of gossip, a dash of self-importance, and a smidgen of literary analysis. Stir these ingredients into a blender approved not by good housekeeping or any populist publication, but by the pretentious snobs over at the New Yorker Book Forum and the New York Review of Books. Suddenly, you're a major name! Except that the kitchen is occupied by half of half of 1% of the population, if that. I mean, let's face the facts here. A slim biography on Ludacris or Lily Allen would be worth more to the general public than an in-depth, meticulously researched 600-page biography about one of the most important post-war American writers. Fortunately, in this case, the literary biographer himself is willing to defend his labors. Okay, so I'm here with Blake Bailey, who is the author of A Tragic Honesty and most recently Cheever. Blake, how are you doing? I'm great, and it's great to be here. I noticed that you opted for Cheever instead of some sort of title along the lines of Tragic Honesty. Uh, why is that? Why did you have to have Cheever? It's, you know, did, did, was this the original intent for Yeats, a biography? Or <laughs> no, I just... no. For some reason, the eponymous title never occurred to me for, for Yeats. Um, I was always going to go with something catchy like A Tragic Honesty. Um, where Cheever is concerned, it's more of a brand name. That's one thing, ah. because Yeats had not been rediscovered uh, at the time that my biography was published. Um, so there was that, and also Cheever, it, it sort of suggests Cheever's own preoccupation with his name, with his public persona, as opposed to the tortured inner man. I want to start with a rather elaborate question, and then we'll cut into the nitty-gritty of your book. John Updike, he wrote a piece called on literary biography. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with it, in which he asked whether we needed literary biographies at all. He concluded that the vocabularies of psychoanalysis and of literary analysis become increasingly intertwined, though we must not forget that these invalids require receive our attention because of the truth and poetry and entertainment to be found in their creations. Now, of course, in the last piece he wrote for The New Yorker, published after his death, he reviewed your book, and he wrote that all this biographer's zeal makes a heavy, dispiriting read where he wanted your narrative pursued in methodical chapters that tick past year after year to hurry through the menacing miasma of a life which for all the sparkle of its creative moments brought so little happiness to its possessor and to those around him. So, I put forth to you, Mr. Big Shot Literary Biographer, why do we need literary biographies? Are you perhaps more of a literary historian? Because there is a considerable amount of detail in this. Mm -hmm. uh, would you call your book more of a history? Uh, is it really gossip peddling? What's what's the deal here? That's Defend a, yourself from Mr. Updike's charges. <laughs> that's a pretty involved question, Ed. Can I sort of take it one at a time? You mentioned Updike, uh, first of all, and um, <laughs> I'm sure that Updike uh, would be uh, tempted to do without literary biography, particularly a literary biography of himself. Um, and I think that that was somewhere in his agenda when he reviewed my book, which he was kind enough to call, and which will be used as a pull quote in one of the advertisements, a triumph of thorough research and unblinkered appraisal. Now, I would venture to suggest a couple of things. First of all, that Updike was a dying man when he reviewed my book, and it was very depressing to read... Um, and, and not the first time that, that, uh, that Updike has been exposed to this, to, to, to read about some of the many hard, hard things that, that Cheever had to say about him in yeah. private. 
because as Updike has uh, noted on many occasions, Cheever was always witty and debonair and charming in person, Updike, and, and really uh, tirelessly promoted Updike's career. He, he seconded his nomination to the National Institute of Arts and Letters. He was the primary nominator of Updike to the Academy of, of Arts and Letters and so on, and blurbed him and congratulated him and on and on and on. In private, in his journals, um, Cheever was, to put it charitably, very ambivalent um, on the subject of Updike. And so that can be very pleasant to read. And also, the chapters dealing with uh, Cheever's own death from cancer uh, must have been grindingly lugubrious for, uh, for Updike to read. Um, I would also, this is a very self-serving theory, but n- not without merit, I think. I have now written a, 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 a very thorough biography of uh, Richard Yates. I have now written a very thorough biography of John Cheever. Um, the three great chroniclers of the post-war American uh, middle class are generally perceived to be Richard Yates, John Cheever, and John Updike. Um, I have been named on more than a few occasions as a prospective biographer of John Updike. He is very cherry of biographers, and um, I think that he did not like the prospect of my bringing my thorough research and unblinkered appraisal to bear on an account of his own life. So this was a very shrewd (laughs) way of uh, steering me off at the pass um, because I could hardly seem uh, disinterested after a biting review of my book, one of the very few biting reviews that I have received, I might add. I'll jump back to that point momentarily, but going back to the idea, why do we need literary biographies? Well, I mean, that's... I I think that that's a silly rumination on, on Updike's part, unless he's... I would have to see the entire context. Is he calling into question the validity of biographies in general? Because uh, I think biographies are one of the most fascinating genres. Certainly, I am more attracted to exploring the universe of a single individual and can imply so much thereby. Um, I think that, and indeed, it's been noted that my biography of Cheever is also something of a uh, history of the 20th century of literary life in America. Um, so, well, of course we need literary biographies. Who's, who's more interesting than Cheever? You know, I mean, he had the most exhaustively documented inner life of any major American writer, a 4,300-page single-space type journal, which one can constantly counterpoint with his um, rather absurd and certainly, um, uh, certainly um, disparate uh, public personas, personae. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think literary biography is fascinating. I think well-done literary biography is uh, doubly fascinating. But would you say this history of the 20th century would be your way of essentially deflating or countering the updike charge that really it should be just about the writer's work? Oh, a- absolutely not. What nonsense. Um, no. Um, I, I think that, uh, again, my th- uh, jo- Joyce Carol Oates, of course, is uh, famous or infamous for coining the term pathography yeah. um, in her r- review of, uh, of a Gene Stafford uh, biography. Um, that is, any biography that places an unseemly emphasis on uh, you know, uh, the subject's tortured inner life. I think if you tell the whole truth about your subject, that um, everything will work out. You just show the man in the round and ultimately um, you will deplore certain aspects of him or her and, uh, and, and you will be um, 
you will sympathize yeah. with certain aspects. I was confronted with some pretty nasty stuff about Cheever, but in the end, I, the biographer, um, felt felt compassion for him. Well, let's talk about the truth, because as I read this and as the biography advanced more to the present day, or rather 1982, I noticed that suddenly there were pseudonyms for many of the people who you talked with. I noticed also that uh, a lot of people weren't willing to go on the record about uh, having an affair with Cheever, or even the novelist who made this terrible call uh, and claimed that Updike had died in a fatal accident, <laughs> which is, is remarkable. Um, so I must ask first and foremost, what methodology did you use to gain the trust both of these contacts and also of Cheever's family because it seems to me that if you're going to devote four years of your life to any subject, right. you're going to have to essentially capitulate some things to the family because they're going to want to see their particular loved one in a pleasant life uh, or you know, maybe you could respond to this. Didn't capitulate a thing. Um, and. and you know, I don't think I'll ever have the opportunity to have such access as I had in this case. Um, what happened was Janet Maslin reviewed my Yates book for the Daily New York Times, and she is Cheever's daughter-in-law. She's married to his older son, Ben, and uh, she gave me the the best review I'll ever get in my life uh, for the, the New York Times, and she pressed the book on Ben. Ben called me, said, I have a book show, cable TV, you know, in Westchester, will you be on it? I was. Afterwards, he... I had thought about doing a biography of Cheever. He's one of my two or three favorite writers, but there had been a previous biography by Scott Donaldson in 1988, and I wanted to be the first biographer of whoever I chose to do. I like the pioneering involved, so um, I, I hadn't, so I decided not to do Cheever, but Ben told me, look, Scott Donaldson didn't have access to the journal, and you, know, you can't really do, um, I mean, Donaldson did his best, but you can't do a creditable um, biography of Cheever without access to the journal and uh, he couldn't quote from letters and other writings because he fell out with the family except you know within the limits of fair use so what happened from was, here, and, and I'm working my, my way around to, to, to answering sure. your question um, it was understood that, that I would have to have total independence and our respective agents the, the Wiley agency on, on the Cheever side put together a very long agreement um, which guaranteed that they could not interfere in any way with interpretive material. They would vet the manuscript for factual accuracy, which is as it should be, but um, the rest of it was entirely my lookout, and they would have to supply all materials available to them, all photographs, letters, the journals, etc., and that they did. They never interfered, and they loved the book. So it was a dream project in that respect. There was some other aspect of your question. Well, it was also about courting trust with the people who were associated with Cheever. Um, and I mean, obviously, you talked with a lot of people uh, for this. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm thinking that, you know, based off of the law of averages, that a few people would probably say, well, hang on a second. I, I really don't want to talk about this particular moment of my life. So There's a woman in the, in the book uh, who Cheever boasted about having an affair with at the Iowa workshop in 1973 when Cheever was 61 and she was 22. Yes. Um, I had interviewed her very early in my research before I had read, before I had really made much progress in the whole 4,300 4, page journal. 
And she told me she was basically, you know, the, the ruinously alcoholic Cheever's caretaker. You know, she drove him around, she escorted him to parties, that sort of thing. And there was absolutely no sex between them. Of course, Cheever had told, had, had accosted people to tell them about having sex with this woman, including his family. Um, when I came to the part in the journal, and by then when you read so much of Cheever's journal, you have a, a sixth sense about when he's trying something out for his fiction, when he's telling the truth, when, when he's telling the truth and turning it into his fiction, etc. So he, he talked about having sex with this woman, and I knew he was telling the truth. I just knew it. And so I called her back, and I said, let me read you this passage from Cheever's journal. And, uh, you know, it is a highly detailed account of a, of a sexual encounter, one of several such uh, highly detailed accounts. And... Um, she vehemently denied it, and for all I know, um, uh, you know, she's she's telling the absolute truth. I don't know. The way I present it in my book is, this is what Cheever says, this is what she said, and I changed her name because there are obvious legal implications. Sure. Um, so I changed her name in the book, and there was also a young man. Do you want to hear about that one? Well, if you like, I suppose. Quickly. Um, a young man who was perfectly willing to, uh, well, as was the young woman initially before that whole journal business, who wanted very much to cooperate with me and did cooperate with me. Um, and he told me about uh, an, an ongoing affair that he and Cheever had for many years. And um, he just asked that I change his name. He wanted me to know about it, but he didn't want me to use his real name, and that's fine. But here's the question. Could you really trust Cheever? I mean, there's the telephone story that you dredge up, which is essentially this particular anecdote that he told Jesse Kornbluth. And you actually have in brackets what the real facts were. Uh, There's also the notion that as uh, Cheever aged, his memory was not up to snuff. In fact, uh, as you point out multiple times, he was having difficulties writing his sentences. So therefore... He had brain me, damage. Yeah, he, he had, had organic brain damage. Brain yes, of yeah. course. So this leads me to wonder if he, in fact, was remembering his <laughs> conquests as accurately even, as he did. Even with brain damage, uh, Cheever had uh, a, a memory of Proustian uh, particularity, um, which was absolutely uh, superhuman and weird. Um, so I don't think that's it. Um, you mentioned uh, the telephone story when he uh, told Jesse Kornbluth of the New York Times Magazine um, a story that reflected a discredit on his old friend in New Yorker editor, William Maxwell. You, you have to understand that uh, what Cheever told the world and what Cheever told himself are two very, very different things. Yeah. Um, Cheever was a born raconteur. He was a born fabulous. The writer Wilfred Sheed said... With Cheever, uh, memory and imagination are not two separate faculties, but one me- meta-faculty. Um, as soon as something happens to Cheever, uh, what, how did Ben put that? You know, he would start to walk across the room with a screwdriver in his hand, and by the time he got to the other side, it was a pair of pliers. You know, um, but when he's when he's writing in his journal and when he's trying, because he called the journal first and foremost an exercise in refreshing my memory. Um, he had to know what those raw materials are. And again, you'll just have to trust, trust me or not trust me, you know, but, but, but you know, that, that I'm being sincere at least, that uh, I felt I had a very sure idea of when he was being 
essentially truthful in his journal and when he wasn't. And again, I, you know, I, I'm not so reckless as to say because Cheever writes in his journal, it must be true. I yeah. mean, I always make the allowance that this is what he wrote, and it may or may not be true. Well, this leads me to also bring up the many interesting connections you draw between Cheever's personal life and the details that made their way into his stories. Uh, they're often almost exact in, in a really eerie sense. I, I got that uh, Library of America uh, two-volume edition, and I was constantly flipping through that and your bio at the same right. time, which led to a three-book juggling act, which I won't go into. But I also <laughs> want to ask about this notion of uh, either changing the truth to fit the fiction, as well as also your tendency to editorialize or not editorialize on whether the stories themselves were good or classics or not. I mean, sometimes you said, this is a terrible story. Sometimes you say, uh, this is a great story. And other times you, you kind of back off and say, well, here's what the critics saw, said. Here is what how the story was received. Here is the scenario in which Maxwell accepted it or rejected it. And so I'm wondering what methodology you laid down for the relation of the stories to his life and the relation of your particular viewpoints of the stories to the biography. Right. This sort of harks back to what we were just talking about, whether the uh, journals are, are reliable. Cheever wrote, um, and addresses what you, what you just asked, um, Cheever wrote a, a short essay for um, a literary textbook edited by Robert Penn Warren and, and Cleanth Brooks called What Happened. It was about the writing of one of his greatest stories, Goodbye My Brother. And in that little essay, Cheever um, talks about a dreary summer on Martha's Vineyard in 1950 when uh, he felt creatively sterile and he was very pessimistic and everything he wrote in his journal were sort of caustic commentary on the petty snobbery and childishness of the other people in his social circle and very gloomy and whatnot. And when he got back to New York, he exercised uh, this gloomy spirit within himself by by projecting it on the character of Tifty in Goodbye My Brother and essentially uh, the narrator um, al almost murders Tifty in the story as, as an act of that sort of exorcism. Well, when I read that essay, uh, Cheever wrote that essay never intending at the time that, that people would actually read the journal that he's characterizing in it. I went to the entries from that summer on Martha's Vineyard that he's describing and he was absolutely uh, faithful in his portrayal of those entries in the essays. Those were, you know, word for word, that's exactly what's there. So Cheever was capable in, on serious matters and his work, nothing, his work was nothing if not serious in, in being truthful um, in his characterizations. As far as my critical approach, which yeah. you just asked, um, with the major work, I, uh, I, I, I always uh, give you know, I, I'll talk about a critical reception, perhaps, and what other critics had to say, but I always give my own analysis of that. As far as synthesizing the, the biographical uh, details um, and how, how that fed into his work, okay, Ed, that's, that's uh, highly, exquisitely uh, complex matter. With, with Yeats, especially later in his career, um, his stories, I, I, I could verify that they almost happened exactly as he wrote them in his fiction, to the extent that if you look at the original manuscripts, he always used real names. A good school, all those people in the, in the first draft, he uses their real names. I interviewed them all, all the ones that were still alive. Everything he wrote in that book happened. You know, Bill Grove, i.e. Richard Yates, being held down and masturbated, that happened. Yeah. And there were witnesses and they were alive. 
um, what he would do was he'd keep the first name and you know barely change the last name. Uh, Harry Flynn's name is really oh my gosh. Harry Flynn is really no Terry Flynn in the novel is Harry Flynn in real life. That sort of thing. Now Cheever, he is a much more um, sophisticated synthesizer of his real life materials. The swimmer. I'm almost done. This is a long. Oh no no no! Go, go feel free to ramble. No, 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 no. Uh, the the swimmer. This is a good example of how Cheever works. He starts out with sort of an abstract donne, which is I'm going to apply the myth of narcissist to you know um, a suburban male, Nettie Merrill, and uh, he's gonna go. He's gonna pool hop. He's gonna go from pool to pool like I do, like I John Cheever do. Cheever did that all the time. He liked to go from one neighbor's pool to the next. Um, and he also brought to that Nettie's boyishness, you know, because that was Cheever's boyishness. You know, he liked not having a regular job. He liked getting drunk whenever he wanted to. He liked screwing Hope Lang when he wanted to go to the city and leave his family behind. You know, he lived, as Maxwell said, like a child would if a child were able to live exactly the way he wanted to. Um, at the same time, his brother Fred, who was seven years older than he, also fed into this because Fred served as sort of a, a monetary figure for Cheever of what he might turn into if he continued on his present course. Cheever, uh, Fred's alcoholism was seven years more advanced than John's. He had lost his all his jobs. He had destroyed his own life and the life of his family, and he was totally um, deluded about the uh, damage that he'd done to himself and his loved ones. So all those materials go into the swimmer and then he writes it and this is why Cheever is for me a more interesting fiction writer than say John Updike something magical happens okay um, as Cheever said as I was writing that story suddenly the seasons were changing the leaves were falling Nettie was getting old and then suddenly bam you're at the end he's at his house it's dark the shutters are hanging, he's banging on the door, and he doesn't know what happened. And, and he, his poor children are in trouble, and it's a haunting, haunting story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to also get into the similarities to Yeats and Cheever, I should point out that, well, they both obviously, as we established, wrote about the suburbs. They were both right. alcoholics. They both weren't exactly the best people to their family. Uh, and uh, I must ask whether in approaching Cheever, uh, you have a very particular viewpoint uh, in which you're going to notice certain details and prioritize them over other ones and I'm wondering if you worried about possible repetition of elements from a tragic honesty into uh, writing about Cheever. Nah, it's a different deal. I mean, of course there are similar, I mean, people think that I'm, I'm morbidly fascinated by, you know, ruinously drunken white American male writers and, you know, there may be something to that. Um, but uh, what, what really sort of interests me in, in the case of both Yeats and Cheever is the, the disparity between the public figure and their private lives. In, in, in Yeats's case, you know, he was really uh, a very shy and, and sensitive and, and decent, underline that, decent man um, who had terrible, overwhelming problems. Um, he had mental illness. Um, he drank a lot to medicate uh, his manic depression. And uh, he suffered all the consequences that, that followed from that. Um, despite his courtliness, despite the fact that he always went out in public in a coat and tie, despite his sort of gently stammering manner when he was sober, uh, he had the foulest mouth on the planet. 
He lived in apartments of Dostoevsky and squalor with vermin all over the place, either dead because he stepped on them and never picked them up or, you know, from secondhand smoke because he smoked like five packs a day. So in, in, in Yates's case, and, and, and I want to point out where Yates is concerned, he was a, a doting father uh, to his, his daughters and they, they love him dearly and they revere his memory. And, and Cheever also made um, heroic attempts to overcome his personal infirmities and be a good father. Um, in Cheever's case, it's far more complicated again. I mean, you're talking about just an absolute nest of paradoxes. I will touch on only one. Um, in public, Cheever had this uh, very aristocratic manner, you know. He's uh, from one of the Brahmin Chivas, yes. And he talked like Thurston Howell III, right, of Gilligan's Island fame. Um, so he wanted people to believe that, that uh, again, he was uh, very much to the manner born. It wasn't true. And he also had this very raffish side. He, he liked to be naked a lot. You know, I mean, John Updike came to take him to Symphony Hall in Boston, and Cheever walked out on, onto the fourth floor landing, stark naked. <laughs> the door shut behind him, you know, and Updike is wondering whether there's an automatic locking mechanism on the door and what he's going to do with naked Cheever. Um, he, his best friend for two or three years was a sing-sing convict named Donald Lang, and Cheever liked nothing better than to go to this black bar with Donald Lang, the Orchid Lounge, and, and chat with Lang's girlfriend, Peaches. Um, and if anything, Cheever embarrassed Lang, not vice versa, because Cheever, again, was always going to people's pools and getting naked. Lang kept his trunks on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also wanted to ask you about Robert Gottlieb's role in relation to Cheever. I mean, he inarguably saved Cheever from financial oblivion with Falconer and in particular the stories, the Red Book that we all read growing up. Right. Uh, but I'm wondering because after Falconer, Cheever had difficulty writing. Uh, yeah. He'd kicked the sauce, he'd kicked the smokes, but uh, he was still uh, having difficulties uh, concentrating on a paragraph or a sentence, even turning something out. He wrote a teleplay, he wrote another novel, a very slim one. But I must ask whether uh, you believe that Cheever would have even found a way to write magnificently, or that was essentially the end for Cheever after Gottlieb had rescued him. Um, Chip McGrath said of those last slim and very poor by Cheever's standard stories that he submitted to the New Yorker, really set pieces in his last couple of years, said that those were the last squeezings from the press. And, and I'm sorry to say it, but I, I having seen the output, um, that's I, I, I'm inclined to agree that Cheever was pretty much done. Um, he'd slung his bolt, you know. I mean, both in terms of the organic brain uh, syndrome that he was suffering. You know, he had he had uh, measurable brain damage. He was diagnosed as having brain damage. A CAT scan showed that. Um, he was having these sort of, he was having epileptic seizures, he was having spells of total forgetfulness where he couldn't remember his own name, um, and Cheever depended on his remarkable memory uh, for, his, for his fiction. Um, also, oh, finally, um, Cheever was so, in many ways, I hate to say this, but um, so dispirited in those last years that... Um, and, and he had accomplished so much um, that he just didn't have the overwhelming discipline and the motivation to, to see it through anymore. So, yeah, I think he was done as a writer. 
Do you think that financial unease actually helped Cheever, the rejections from Maxwell and the like? Because he seemed to be determined to have some kind of status. We were talking about this Thurston Howell III period, but you also point out in his latter days, well, he's essentially talking like a snob and he can't even pronounce French correctly and the like. He's name-dropping right. artists and poets left and right. But uh, I, I, it makes me wonder whether actually the financial unease helped him to focus because he was so determined to make his mark and so determined to have some kind of acceptance, particularly with The New Yorker. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that, that uh, he was a money writer, but not shrewd about money. And I, was that a goad uh, for, for his work? Absolutely. He had a family to support. And uh, he, for many years, he refused to accept his wife's money. And she had a quarterly inheritance from the, you know, Thomas Watson estate, Watson, the co-inventor of the, the telephone, which yeah. was a significant, it was about $10,000 a year in a time when $10,000 a year was, was quite a bit of money. Cheever would not accept it. Um, so, and, and, you know, the New Yorker uh, was, Harold Ross was a legendary cheapskate, but the New Yorker was, was underpaying Cheever yeah. um, for reasons which are a little sinister and, and which I'm not even going to go into. Um, but I thought it was a very strange aspect of the New Yorker Cheever story. So, um, yeah, I think that's... <clears throat> and, and, again, it was another disincentive uh, toward the end of his life to keep working because he'd sort of made his little packet. Yeah. You know, he was, he was, he was richer than he ever dreamed of being. Yeah. Um, you know, and so what's, what's the point, especially when you don't feel like it? Well, to tie this also into status, I should probably bring up critical reception. You bring up Dwight McDonald's famous piece uh, of cousins, or by cousins, Possessed, which essentially secured Cheever the National Book Award for the Wapshot Chronicle. That is true. And uh, I have to ask John Leonard as well. Uh, Here's a guy who championed uh, Bullet Park uh, and actually wrote a terrible review for Falconer. So uh, is it your suggestion, possibly, that the literary critics actually had this ability to either help Cheever directly because Cheever was so sensitive about this particular status or whether he was able to advance or stay afloat at the top of the echelon simply because of these unintentional uh, factors or whether this was possibly just a time period in which literary criticism did in fact matter, in which it could in fact make or break people, just as uh, McDonald's piece did. Um, Literary criticism, I I think uh, it was a more bookish time, especially a more bookish time among the middle class, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, and certainly um, a a critic with uh, Dwight McDonald's influence could make or break a career, and he totally wrecked Cousins' career with with that essay. Um, and did make way for uh, Cheever to win uh, the National Book Award. Um, but in Cheever's case, I think that his recognition was, if anything, belated. I mean, he was writing uh, stories of <laughs> that, that, that were superlative and innovative in ways that he didn't start receiving credit for until the late 50s or the 60s, not really until he got the National Book Award for the Wabshot Chronicle. And uh, as far as the critical reception, his critical reception was, uh, was, was deeply Philistine and unfair for many, many years. Um, he had the extreme bad fortune of his first real uh, short story collection, The Enormous Radio, published in 1953, because he disavowed the first yes. collection, uh, was published the same month as Salinger's Nine Stories. Now, Cheever correctly, I think, regarded himself as a better writer than, than J.D. Salinger. However, Salinger's Nine Stories have stayed in print forever and are regarded as a classic. 
Cheever's stories taken as a whole certainly um, amount to a classic volume, but the enormous radio sunk without a bubble at the time, and Arthur Meisner, who wrote the, the pioneering biography of Scott Fitzgerald, uh, this, The Far Side of Paradise, wrote a joint review of Nine Stories and uh, yes. The Enormous Radio by way of contrasting uh, the good capital G sort of New Yorker writer with a bad capital B sort of New Yorker writer. Salinger, of course, being the former and Cheever being the latter. Salinger uh, sort of augmenting his sense of craftsmanship with his own quirky uh, vision while uh, Cheever was just sort of an empty uh, craftsman per se. Again, that that's, is grievously um, unfair, but uh, that was the sort of thing that was happening to Cheever in those days. But here's the thing. Cheever courted all the letters that came his way, and he claimed that he didn't care about the reviews, but he oh. was obsessed with the reviews obsessed. simultaneously. We, so We all are. Yeah, well, I, well <laughs> we had established that. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this brings to mind about why he cared so much. Was it possibly just the misery of living with a wife who didn't particularly love him, who essentially, like, cast her cheek away when he tried to kiss her? Or what happened here? You have to understand that uh, Cheever is a classic narcissist, both, both in the everyday vernacular of saying that someone's narcissistic and in the clinical, you know, he's a narcissistic yeah. personality. I mean, he saw many psychiatrists. They always came to the same conclusion that he was a classic narcissist. Um, what does that mean? Well, it means, in Cheever's case, first of all, it's commonplace to say that a, an imaginative artist lives in his own world. In Cheever's case, that was preeminently so. That was so to the extent that coming out of his writing room when he was done with the day's work was like coming out of some bottomless aquarium <laughs> into a strange world where these abstractions flitted around Cheever, um, sort of projections of his imagination, his wife, his children. They were supposed to behave like characters in one of his story, and when they didn't, it was dismaying, and, 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 and it made Cheever very angry. Um, so he was very narcissistic. On the other hand, um, he was incredibly uh, attentive, kind, encouraging, um, sensitive, especially to younger writers. He was three times chairman of the Academy of Arts and, and Letters Grants Committee. He had to read 200 new terrible novels a year looking for the one that deserved his help. Now, that uh, seems to sort of blight the narcissism. Actually, it's a very logical flip side of narcissism because narcissists above all, want to be loved. <laughs> so, but, you know. but, Blake, I must challenge your dichotomy by pointing out that he helped Ralph Ellison get into the Century Club. That's right. But that's after Ellison wrote this rave of Wapshot, right? Simultaneously. Other way around. Oh, other way around. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, scrap that. Every, everyone's scratching each other's okay. backs. But, but Alan uh, Gerganis' uh, story that appeared in The New Yorker came with a certain idea of strings attached, all right? So, so this leads me to believe that, well, perhaps in some sense he did, in fact, have this gesture towards other people, the effort to buy groceries for his wife and ended disastrously, as you point out. But, but there's also this, this category of doing things for other people because of his status, because there are strings attached, because there was something he could get. So how do you corral all this together? Um, uh, certainly... 
as is the case with all of us, Ed, um, there were times when Cheever's help, certainly with Alan Gerganis and, and poor Max Zimmer, was, was far from disinterested. Um, I, should, I should say that, uh, no, I, maybe I won't say that, but um, Gerganis, uh, the story that uh, Cheever helped get published in the New Yorker Minor Heroism would have absolutely uh, been published uh, in any case if you know, Joe Blow had shown it to Bill Maxwell. It's a, it's a wonderful story. Um, look, it got so bad for Cheever that uh, that he could barely read um, a book by an acquaintance without putting it down on his knee every three paragraphs and wondering what on earth he could say to this person that would be both true and, and encouraging. Um, and part of that is because Cheever felt things very deeply, and he, and he did... He did not, especially as a sober man, he did not like to hurt people's feelings unnecessarily. He was, he was deeply sensitive. You know, he was one of the, the, the great, um, you know, imaginative artists of the 20th century. Of course he's sensitive. At the same time, again, um, he had a, a, a desperate, neurotic, wildly inflated need to be loved. If you wrote a letter to Cheever trying to sell him insurance, um, he would write you back a full page telling you, you know, a dirty joke and, you know, and, and you would go away feeling completely charmed whether or not you sold him any insurance. What also of Cheever's use of sexuality in his prose and what he actually bemoaned and brayed about in Updike's, he's, he's complaining about Updike writing about sex all the time, and yet Wapshot was the first book of the month club pick to contain the word fuck. And his sexuality in his fiction became increasingly more prominent. So uh, what explains this particular shift? Was it the times, or was it perhaps his growing awareness of his own sexuality? Yeah, was, that's good, Ed. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. You know, he... he after every it, people keep ringing up because it, it was on Dick Cavett's New York Times blog, uh, his joint appearance with um, with with Updike in 1981, and they say you certainly don't characterize that relationship accurately because you can see how much they liked each other on that show. Well, the day after it taped, he Cheever wrote his friend John Weaver. He said, um, you know. Updike has described erection so exhaustively that he's beginning to look like a prick with a hairpiece. You know, so he, he can be he could be pretty tough on uh, on old Updike. And the difference between, or how Cheever, I think, would account for the difference between the element of the ribald in his writing and in Updike's writing is, I mean, Cheever was no prude. Not in his work and, and not, not in his life, certainly. Not in his fourth um, floor appearances. No. <laughs> um, you know, Wapshot Chronicle is a, is a wonderful uh, celebration of sexual exuberance and sex as being one of the few reliable comforts that we have in this veil of tears. Um, however, he doesn't get into the nuts and bolts of it the way Updike does, you know. I mean, he doesn't describe the penis entering the orifice and blah, blah, blah. Or he doesn't describe it until the very sort of uh, tail end of his career, he starts to get a bit more graphic because he was changing with the times, you know? And he was sort of a pateng, uh, the, the New Yorker, because he was going to sell it to Playboy anyway in, in the 70s and, and, and 80s. Um, so, so, yeah, he did become more explicit then, but Cheever, for the most part, is certainly at the height of his powers, and not just because he had to, um, 
he didn't. He, he thought that there was something sort of unseemly, and it lacked sort of um, poet, poetic suggestiveness to get into the grisly sort of nuts and bolts of, of the sexual act. He, he said of Mailer, you know, that his fetid work was constrained by the fact that there are only three orifices after all, so it gets sort of repetitious. But he also loathed Barth, didn't think much of Barthelme. And I'm wondering if some of this was a reaction to the up-and-coming postmodern movement that was happening around the 60s and the 70s. The reason he uh, dis- despised, well, he just found Barth tedious. And, uh, you know, Cheever felt that, that fiction was a way of making sense of your life and helping others make sense of their lives. And he had a very, um, as all first-rate writers do, he had a very keen sense of an audience. He was telling a story. He wanted to entertain people, and he didn't want to stare at his navel and show show off how smart he was. Um what, what pissed him off about Bartleby was that Bartleby was doing things in the, you know, New 60s Yorker. in the New Yorker, Sean's chosen surrealist. He was doing the same things that got Cheever um, accused of losing his powers because of alcohol and whatnot, because Cheever was writing the death of Justina about, you know, not being able to bury a dead elderly cousin because there's a zoning ordinance against it, you know, and also in writing... Um, you know, advertisements for an elixir that cures, you know, radio, radioactive disease and the swimmer where the seasons uh, change in the course of a single afternoon and the ocean where the narrator is magically transported away from his ghastly family to a bucolic English countryside. He was writing that kind of magical realism. The Enormous Radio 1947, yeah, a radio that broadcast the private lives of people in Manhattan. You know, I could go on and on. He was doing this stuff long before. He was doing metafiction at the beginning of his career when he was barely 20 years old yeah. before John Barth was doing. And yet he never lost sight of fiction's fundamental mission. And that is, again, to make sense of our lives and to entertain us and, and not to show off. So that's why he hated Barth and Barth. Were you, I, able, yeah. were you able to find a definitive reason for why he loved commercials and advertisements as much as he did? I mean, <laughs> uh, it's a very, very curious obsession. And it, as you pointed out, it does crop up in his fiction and it crops up in a lot of his work and in his journals, etc. Why was he? Why did he love commercials? He put commercials into his teleplay, for goodness sake. Um, he, he loved the sort of vulgar exuberance of, uh, of commercials, and particularly, you know, uh, like in the, 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 the thought of uh, the Elixir Call commercials that he used twice. He used them in The Death of Justina, yeah. and he used them in the teleplay for the Shady Hill Kidnapping, where this... You know, Celeste Holm, who's like 70-something years old when she played this commercial spokesman for Elixir Call, and she's godly made up. He specified, you know, in the death of Justina that the the, the product spokesman should be an aging woman of ready abandon, you know? And he loved the way that that sort of pandered, you know, to the fantasies of, of, of women at home sitting in their ratty bathrobes smoking and thinking, wow, if I, you know, take this product, I'll, I'll start getting laid again. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it appealed to his enormously fertile sense of humor more than anything. Last question. What, to your mind, was the definitive Good, reason... Good, because I really have to pee. Yes, okay. <laughs> okay. What, to your mind, was the definitive reason for why Mary Cheever stuck with John, her husband, for so long. I mean, you point out that she was a very good homemaker, but as we've established in a few of these answers, she was not, of course, a loving uh, spouse for him. And stick, <coughs> stuck, but stuck, stuck around all the time, even after the kids had grown up and left. Right. The easy answer is that um, 
Mary Cheever was aware of the fact that she was married to a great artist and she took pride in sort of the custodial aspect of that. She never, she always served him dinner, um, you know, and she took she took care of him. She made sure the house was clean. She, after beyond a point, she didn't let him sleep in, in her bed anymore. Um, and, and there were just, just ghastly um, aspects of that marriage. Um, sort of the less um, simplistic answer is that Mary Cheever, I think she kind of enjoyed the, the jousting aspect of it because uh, she herself was, was very intelligent and very passive aggressive. And, um, you know, liked to bedevil uh, Cheever. I, I think it appealed to her sense of humor, and she does have a very mischievous sense of humor. So, you know, she would do things like enter a room where he was sitting and conspicuously breathe through her mouth until he would, you know, solicitously say, what's wrong, uh, do you have a cold? And, you know, and she'd say, no, you stink of gin! Yeah. You know, so that's the dynamics of that particular She talks like era. that then, basically. She has a very high-pitched voice. Yes. Wow, that's an impression. You, you, you haven't been a stand-up comic in any previous life. I, I have not. These are sort of lame, stylized uh, impersonations. You know, anything for you. Uh, yeah, well, Blake, yeah. thanks so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure to chat. It was, it was a great pleasure to chat. Thanks for having great. me. Great. Thanks. Okay. Okay.